Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today more than ever before, companies, brands, and their partners need to stand for something beyond the bottom line. I've created this program to provide insights and ideas to share with you so that you can apply them to your work the very next day. The goal here is to up-level your purpose and to benefit companies and society. So please join us. Today's episode is one you absolutely have to listen to. Judy Samuelson, who is an old friend, and she is the founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program. And she's also a vice president at the Institute. Judy has just written a book called The Six New Rules of Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World. Because Judy's background has been everything from business and banking and major foundations and think tanks, she brings this unique vision to the role that business must evolve to in our rapidly changing world. And she codifies her point of view in these six rules that are just extraordinary. I trust that after our conversation today, that you are going to want to go out and buy these books, not just for you, but your team. Because she truly, clearly, and in an inspiring and compelling way, draws us in to why the business world must adapt. Let's begin. So welcome to the show, Judy. Thank you, Carol. Wow, what a welcome. (laughs) Now, I'm going to embarrass you some more because that's what I always do when I bring on these incredible, incredible thought leaders. So this comes from background on the six new rules of business. The rules of business are changing dramatically. Success is no longer defined by the balance sheet. Reputation, trust, and other intangibles drive business value, give employees voice, to the risk in the company, as well as what their needs are, competitive advantage, and I love this, culture is king. Business as usual, says Judy, it's not a viable option anymore. From technology to supply chains, social impact to environmental limits, the landscape for business and the definition of success has been upended. Income inequality is rife. Social discord is high, and the demand for business to create real value for all its stakeholders has become a loud and rallying cry. Many of the forces that define these new rules of business are already in play, and business, arguably the most powerful force in the world, is in a desperate need of a new operating manual. 
So let's get into background on this book, because I know once you listen to this, my listeners, you are going to want to buy many copies. So, Judy, I want to start with the basics. Um, Can you tell us about the Aspen Institute and what is your role in it? The Aspen Institute, a wonderful organization, it has uh, a platform for many programs, most of which focus on institutional change. They, they blend dialogue, bringing people together from different perspectives who are leaning into a problem and are looking for better solutions and a better way to move forward. And they engage in identifying supporting leaders, change agents working inside critical institutions. In our case, in the business and society program at the Aspen Institute, it's all about aligning business decision-making with the long-term health of society. And that is that is profound. And I have attended a couple of your events and I, I came away with just my my mind bursting with new ideas. And so the Aspen Institute, which was founded in 1949, um, is just going incredibly strong and moving forward. And it's so in tune with how business needs to evolve today. So let's just talk a little bit about you. Why do you do the work that you do? You know, I wonder about that sometimes. <laughs> I think, you know, it, I, I've worked in all sectors. You know, after college, I worked in the state capital in California for a number of years. I came east for, for business school. I worked in banking, you know, a street banker in the garment center of New York City. I moved to the Ford Foundation where I uh, took over the program-related investment program there, which today we would call impact investing or something along those lines, a, a program really dedicated to supporting intermediaries between private markets and, and public good and supported that financially by through investment vehicles. And, and then I, you know, at Ford, I began to think about more about the role of corporations and, and, uh, and created this program. So I do think that one of the things that enables me to do what I do is I really, I'm drawn towards systemic change. That is, for some reason, that's at the root of what I care the most about and which, you know, really animates my work, our work. And I think for some reason, because of maybe spending so much time in different sectors, I do have an ability to look at things from different perspectives. And I think, um, you know, to a great extent, business is a remarkably important institution, but it's in a squeeze play. And to, to understand what moves us forward, I think you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of, of other kinds of institutions and interests. And, um, you know, that's part of the magic, I believe. I believe it, too. So let's get into the book. What You know, writing a book, as you know, it's just painful and it's arduous. And, you know, every word, you know, you're just like, is it the right word? And is this the right point? So what was the impetus to write the book? Well, I wanted to tell our story. Uh, You know, I... I founded the Business and Society program on January 1st, 1998. We've been at this for a long period of time. And I've learned a lot, both in the period of time when I was at the Ford Foundation and then since then, I've learned a lot about what really uh, drives business decision-making, kind of what's going on in the DNA. And I wanted to talk about what I think is kind of the underbelly of this system, as opposed to the kind of CSR view of business, which I think a lot of which is seen from the outside, but doesn't get at some of the fundamental conflicts that exist between the incentive systems and the and the kind of decision rules and protocols and the things that actually that leaders are held to account 
for by an important segment of the investor market versus the aspirations and the license to operate on the other hand. And this complex story is one that I think we need to better understand. And you certainly, you cut it into segments to make it very understandable. So let's go into the six new rules of business. Can you briefly share them? And then I want to go into some of them more deeply. You know, I think a fundamental one today, when I got out of business school, we were measuring the value of firms in terms of kind of bricks and mortar hard assets and discounting cash flows, you know, 30 years out and applying a discount rate. You know, all of that stuff today doesn't really line up against the reality that something like 80, 85 percent of business valuation is based on intangibles. In other words, things that we can't necessarily measure very easily. Trust is a big one. Trust in institutions is down everywhere, but clearly trust in business is down. Um, You know, the license to operate, the sense that you want to be able to land wherever you want and operate business the way you want to be able to do it. Well, you know, your reputation precedes you and your ability to negotiate that space, your ability to attract and retain talent. All of these things make up business valuation today. And what you mentioned earlier, culture is an important piece of this. So that's that's an important piece, which takes us right to something, Carol, that you have written eloquently about for and focused on for many years, which is, you know, what is the purpose of the corporation? Today, businesses, it's very clear, they serve many purposes. It's certainly not about shareholder primacy, although a lot of that legacy is in place. The third piece is just how much the definition of the responsibilities of business have shifted. They land way outside the gate. Companies with global reach and you know attenuated supply chains, they're not defining what the responsibilities are. They're being defined by agents that want to hijack your brand uh, for purposes of making a larger point and a bigger play in a system at risk. And that happens time and again. And, um, you know, oftentimes the responsibilities that are defined are not things that you even believe within the business or within your control. So it's complicated terrain. Fourth, and this is something I think we're all seeing, is the degree to which our notion of what employees are about has shifted. Mm -hmm. The old rule was that employees are a cost of doing business. Today, it is increasingly clear that built that that employees are the accountability mechanism for business. I call it employee, I call I call it accountability from the cafeteria. Uh, were, were we still in the cafeteria? Maybe we'll get back to that place at some point. Um, but employees are really your ally. You know, they they have they have uh, they're well aligned with the long-term health of the enterprise and um, open up both risk and opportunity to better view. You know, a couple that are kind of maybe even more surprising, you know, it used to be that capital is king. Capital, financial capital isn't that critical anymore. We're awash in capital. It's not a scarce resource. And the stock market is a lot of noise, but it's not necessarily representing the current interest of the corporation. Culture is much more important. It's culture that's king, not capital today. And then finally, something we're, we're seeing in real time is that when the system is at risk, we need to co-create, not just compete. No, you and I are so aligned on so many of these 
uh, rules. Um, I, I, for sure, you wrote about them uh, more eloquently than I state them, but love them all. So we don't have enough time today to go into all of them, but I do want to hopscotch into the some of the ones that truly I think our listeners will want to go deeper on. So let's go to chapter two, which is about purpose. You've been in this field for a long time. Why is purpose really important today? Can you give us one or two examples of companies that are really doing it right? Purpose is ground zero. It's the organizing principle for activity. It's, it's, it's the reason employees get up in the morning and want to go to work. It is central to kind of setting the company's direction, and it's fully within the control of the executive. Um, you know, I write about a, a, a faculty member, uh, Karen Brenner, who teaches, uh, kind of does work between the business school and the law school at NYU. And she, she gives her students an assignment uh, in her class to, you know, kind of take out a business uh, <laughs> you know, to, to, to create a business. You know? okay. So, okay. You, you know, you call up the secretary of state and you get the form and download it and pay 75 bucks. And you're asked to say, what is the purpose of the enterprise? The executive decides it's not something that's foisted on you by law. So, but it's, it's clearly the, um, it's, it's, it's the opportunity to, uh, as Larry Fink would say, find the touchstone that belongs in the public sphere here. How do you align purpose with something bigger than you are is part of the quest. You know, I think some of the companies that do this well have always done this well. You know, I write about Levi Strauss. It's a company I have great admiration for. They've been around for something like 175 years. I mean, they were started during the gold rush. That's a company that still lives by the the culture of the family, the values of the family that have have um, kind of have woven through the history of Levi Strauss. And you can see in their actions a degree to which they're ahead of the curve because they're thoughtful about who they are as an enterprise, who they're trying to serve, what constitutes a quality product, and are continuing, you know, it's a it's the notion of continuous improvement here. They're always shifting the norms around um, around product development to make sure that they are kind of current with the latest concerns and definitions of, of quality product. For example, and I, and I went to one of your courses at Levi's. You held it there in San Francisco. And um, their waterless jeans are a great example of, you know, they knew that water was an issue, 42 liters of water made a pair of jeans, and they totally reconstituted their manufacturing processes from um, the machines they used to all to going all the way downstream to helping cotton farmers be more effective and also to the way that end of life use cutting cutting jeans into insulation. So um, I totally, I totally agree with you. The other thing I'd say about Levi's, if I might, yeah, is sure. that they don't stop at the gates of their own enterprise. Mm-hmm, exactly. The impact they have influences the entire industry. So they were the first to really disclose their factories as a way of being fully transparent and holding themselves out to public accountability to make sure that they were always ahead of the, you know, over the bar of what is considered an appropriate standard. And of course, you know, it was Michael Cabori at Levi Strauss was in, was instrumental in creating the Better Cotton Initiative. Oh, great guy. 
Yeah, truly, truly, truly wonderful. Um, I also love that you have this quote in your book from Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn, defining authenticity. And he says, simply, it's about keeping your promises. It's about actions, not words. So, so I love that. Let's take a break and find out what else is happening besides this podcast that you may want to know about. In our In the Know section this week, the question rises, did stakeholder capitalism get the pink slip? What happened was very disappointing. One of our great leaders in the field of stakeholder capitalism, Emmanuel Faber, one of the world's foremost proponents, lost his job as CEO and chairman of Danone. It would be easy to say that this is a blow for stakeholder capitalism moving forward. But perhaps, according to Just Capital, that would be a mistake. Faber, for background, invested heavily in sustainable products and packaging and acquired France's legal qualification of a purpose-driven company and B Corp status for Danone, North America. Ultimately, however, it appears that activist investors pushed Faber out, not because he was so committed to sustainability, but because he wasn't delivering returns. For the past couple years, Danone's share price has underperformed both Unilever and Nestle. Two companies that is important to note have also embraced bold ESG initiatives. Engine number one's battle with ExxonMobil is an interesting parallel, except here the activist is pushing for stronger climate-related investments. What both cases have in common is that they are ultimately about the pathway to greater shareholder returns. Where they differ is on the means to get there. This focus on long-term value generation is fundamental because it knits together everything. Take diversity, equity, and inclusion, for example. Former Xerox CEO Ursula Burns, speaking on CNBC recently, frames her championing of gender and race, ethnicity, and equity within companies in terms of performance and as a way to attract and retain top talent and better serve customers. So what is the difference between Emmanuel Faber and Danone and Ursula Burns or ExxonMobil? As Just Capital reminds us, corporate commitments to ESG and stakeholder performance must at some point translate into both strong financial performance and real outcomes on the underlying societal issues at stake. Remember, it's the power of and. That is the point. And Just Capital, in its continuing polling with business leaders, say that this is where we all need to work really hard between business impact and social impact and the power of the two aligning together to 
support growth as well as impact. Now back to our conversation with Judy Samuelson. to another area that I found intriguing. Um, You talk about the need to define stakeholders more precisely for companies. Can you explain what you're thinking there? I don't love the term stakeholder. My my colleagues uh, in the Business Society program give me a lot of grief about this because it's like, hey, can we go with what's current here? (laughs) Um, And of course, it is a powerful idea but only in opposition to the idea that it's about shareholders. It's that kind of stakeholders versus shareholders that animates the conversation. You and I have both been at this table for a long period of time. Stakeholder capitalism is not a new idea. It's one that's come back in vogue, but it doesn't help business make decisions is my belief. Every company is different. Every industry is different. This, the kind of what is what needs to be true to assure that you are on the right path, what, what piece is absolutely critical as an input to the health of your enterprise is different for Intel than it is for McDonald's. And you know the de- definition of that tends to get kind of a little mushy when we just talk about stakeholders. So I prefer to name them. You know, I prefer to name what is absolutely critical to your enterprise to make sure that at the level of board and executive that we're, we're managing to that input. So I'm going to totally jump off my questions here, but you just mentioned board. And I would love, because you you, you work with a lot of boards and, and board members, um, how are boards feeling today about this, the huge wave of purpose? And how does a practitioner, somebody, let's say in the C-suite, CCO, CMO, chief, chief, CSO, how do they work with a board to get the per- understanding and permission to embed more of society in an authentic way into their businesses? Well, you know, we could talk about CEO pay because that's at the center of this question. And it's one of the most significant responsibilities, if not the most significant responsibility of the board. But I, partly I want to just say, Carol, watch this space because I think we're going to see such massive change in boards in the next decade. You know, when we get out of COVID, somebody who was a director was advising us on, on the work that we've done on CEO pay. And she said, you know, we're going to get off of these Zoom calls. And a lot of us are going to say, you know, enough, you know, I helped you get through this, this, uh, you know, meltdown, but, you know, it's time for me to move on. And I've, I've been on enough Zoom to last me a lifetime. Um, where I also know that there's real and current pressure to diversify boards, you know, gender, race, and that's underway and it's happening much more quickly. So I think we're going to see a very different kind of conversation because we're going to be bringing in younger people. We're going to be bringing in people who have a different life experience and a different point of view. It has been my own personal 
experience that women kind of overselect on the concern of business and how it relates to the wider kind of health of the you know society on which it's dependent and so i think we'll i think we'll see more change in that but we're also starting to see boards experiment with different kinds of committee formation and hopefully that's also being driven down into the firm as we talk about how that translates into how managers are actually rewarded and and what what needs to be true in order to make sure that we operationalize this change. So the wind is going from being in your face to at your back when these boards start changing. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, it has been. They've been kind of running against it. And now are they going to, Is yeah, can they take some confidence yes. from, you know, the way that the, the winds are shifting? Absolutely. So thank you for that. Um, I want to go to rule number three. And um, it's about corporate responsibility. And, and, and it says, I just actually took a copy of this page, um, it, the old rule, corporate responsibility is defined by host communities and fence line neighbors. And probably most listening to this call are going to go, yeah, that's the way it is, but that's not good enough anymore. And you talk about the new rule, that, it, it, that corporate responsibility is defined for outside the business gates. Can you talk about who's outside, what's outside, and why that's important? You name any environmental organization today, labor organizations, they all have strategies and increasingly sophisticated ideas about how to work with the business sector. So you take in organizations like World Wildlife Fund or Nature Conservancy or you know, one of my favorite ones is the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership, which I write about in the work of Jim Cannon, who works as kind of in a shadow space, but acknowledges the importance of the, you know, the Oxfam or the Greenpeace who creates the noise with a kind of media facing strategy, but then motivates the company. The one that has the biggest brand, therefore, is the one who has the most at risk, but also the most to gain if we can figure this out. And it's about building the kind of coalitions within that enable massive change to take place. So in a lot of these kind of systems that business is wholly a part of, they make control a particular relationship, but they certainly don't control the entire supply chain. But when you're the one, say it's a McDonald's or a PepsiCo or a Walmart, if you're the one targeted and we're tarnishing your brand in order to you know, elevate the condition of an e- a critical ecosystem or a labor condition or the health of, of a community of one kind or another, you know, you're motivated to get at the table and to maybe over time start to get ahead of the curve when you see these questions and these risks emerging. So complex partnerships, attenuated supply chain, the need to work with and across your you know, your ecosystem as a business and and sit with those who represent the interest of others that need to be considered in making good quality decisions. You just gave like four great insights. So that was wonderful. Do you remember the time, and I do, when they had the orangutans that weren't real, that they were like people in orangutan suits and they were climbing up the Unilever gates, their, you know, their walls. And that was a pre-Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. That was, I think, pre-Paul Pullman. And to your point, you know, that and I was that Greenpeace or Wildlife? This is, but it's usually Greenpeace. I don't okay. know if it was in that case. I, there was something similar done to McDonald's that first started the question around styrofoam. Remember styrofoam? Oh, right. Yeah. And eliminate, you know, eliminating the clamshell packaging and all of that. You know, shell. Shell went through, you know, 
um, many rounds of, of, uh, of direct action um, from Greenpeace and others. You know, the thing that's interesting about this, Carol, and you probably know this, and I assume agree with this, it's the big brand is not usually the biggest problem. It's what sits behind that brand, the nameless B2B players on which the entire system is dependent that may be the real targets of, you know, hoisting a flag at the, uh, you know, the launch that Shell has raised its banner on. Well, that's, that's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but we conducted, I, we believe that most comprehensive B2B purpose research, um, and we launched it right before, like the week before the shutdown. And found, interestingly, that B2Bs, 86% had a stated purpose. We were shocked. And it was everything from manufacturing to healthcare, professional services, financial services, and such. Yet, only 24% had it activated. So that's what we call that research, the B2B purpose paradox. So I think that there is some wins, you know, gaining um, in, you know, B2B uh, leaders. And so, um, but it is to your point, it's a whole, it's the value chain. It's the supply chain that has to truly um, get in step with being much more accountable and responsible. So uh, you and I are, are always in f- fierce agreement. Um, you, you've got so many gems in this book. You've got like over 100 gems. Um, you also advocate for cross-functional relationships in the organization to bring purpose into authentic action. And you suggest that strategists should interact with business leads to connect purpose, strategy, and capital allocation. Why? Well, these strategists that we're talking about is, is, and you and I both know a lot of them, these are people that have deep, deep experiment, uh, experience in, you know, engaging with, uh, you know, campaigners, uh, targeted investors. I mean, a host of people that have a point of view and, and criticism of the company. They also sit inside the company and help advise investor relations and, you know, on occasion, they're also advising the CEO. But these people are often, you know, they're viewed too much as, oh, that's CSR and that's the stuff we do down the hallway or when we have extra time and money. And increasingly, they will need to be at the center of the conversation in order to really think about strategy in terms of the long-term play and, and where all of these competing interests, and they are competing interests, you know, they, they're... They are not all working in an aligned way, and there are real trade-offs in, in line. There is no, you know, you ask about, you know, profit and purpose and how do they, you know, how do they fit with one another? You know, of course, you need both profits and you need purpose, but you can't have profit maximization and purpose. And these are healthy, you know, kind of interlocutors who can help the company be more strategic and assuring that their intentions are met through their operations. Wisely stated. Do you have any other suggestions how to arm the strategists or evolve, put some wind, like, you know, move them over like a sailboat, you know, towards the the business units? Well, I think it's, I think today, you know, a lot of it is happening, whether or not um, the company wants it to, is in fact a function of employee voice. You know, you, you match the generations that have moved into it. And I think even for us boomers, I think it, it's not that that wasn't always something that we would have liked, but we lived in a different era when there was more of an inclination to divide work and home. And of course we didn't use social media and that's changed everything. So 
um, I think some of it today is being attuned to what they're hearing from employees, um, but also inviting the outside in. And, and these, these uh, you know, corporate responsibility and sustainability strategists are uniquely equipped to do that with real authenticity because they can speak to both the business model and the context in which that, that business operates. I want to talk about number five, rule number five, because you talked about it in your introduction and you said culture is king and I'm going, yay. So I'd love you to just expand upon that. And then my part two of it, can you, you, you give some examples, but you know, who are your favorites that just have these cultures that are so smart, defined, purposeful, human. So why is culture king versus cash is king? Well, you know, cash was king when when cash was a scarce resource. You know, when General Motors was at the top of the tables for, you know, market valuation, uh, it was a different ballgame. They were in constant raising capital mode because they were building plants and facilities and and expansion was, you know, was a costly uh, investment. But today, you know, for tech companies, it's just not the case. I mean, we have tech companies going public all the time that aren't really accessing capital markets. They're just, you know, listing with the market in order to enable their early investors and venture capitalists and the like to have an exit if they wish. And so that's changed dramatically. So the question is, there's two questions embedded there. Why do we cede so much ground to investors Given that you got your money at the IPO, to quote Marjorie Kelly, the author of The Divine Right of Capital, you got your money at the IPO, and typically speaking, companies don't return to the public market. So why do they care? They care because sometimes their CEO, well, the CEO is always being paid to care by you know, loading up the CEO with stock. But what's absolutely abundantly clear today is that the companies that really succeed are the ones that have a robust culture. So I write about Southwest Airlines. People talk all the time about Costco is another one. One of the ones that I write about in the book is Herman Miller. I mean, this is a company that's been around for a long time. And culture has always been a part, you know, of the of the DNA of the company in the sense that they put design at the center almost from the time that they flipped from being a small retail store to started going into the real furniture manufacturing business. So by putting design at the center, that puts the designer at the center. And they always valued that that particularly important um, input that melded art and, and design and then morphs into quality. So what that enabled Herman Miller to do by by building that kind of culture that valued design and the designer and the input of their employees was really allowed them to be ahead of the curve and to kind of get on the sustainability wave before it was really, you know, current in many companies. And they built sustainability design into what it makes, what, what constitutes a high quality product. So that kind of thing is what's enabled by a robust culture is staying ahead of the curve, innovation, deep, deep listening of customers and customer service and treating your employees well. So that becomes a natural outgrowth of a, of a, of a healthy relationship within your enterprise. I would love your opinion on Microsoft because um, we worked with them during the Bill Gates years, um, helped setting their purpose. 
and then later um, worked with Brad Smith. But now Satya Nardella is is the leader there, and he's very, very different. And he's very humble. I, I've interviewed a couple people um, about uh, Microsoft. Um, Akhtar Badshaw, who I think you know, Akhtar, he's just great. And, you know, they, in the book, in his book, he says, you know, they went from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. So I don't know if you had any experience with Microsoft, but I found that they just have profoundly changed. Yeah, I think they have changed. And of course, the company really did a turnaround in many respects, too. Um, and, and the stock prices followed. When Satya Nadella and, and Brad and the and the sustainability team announced these uh, climate objectives last January, January 2020. That was a real. Oh, that was a that big was deal. A, that was a moment. That was a moment of important change and a real signaling that a company with their kind of brand was putting real resources into um, the belief that managing to the constraint of climate was something that was going to position the company well over the long haul, but that the company also had a lot to give by investing heavily that they would be able to support broader change in carbon capture and you know, make their IP available so that the kind of system could move move forward more quickly, which of course is critically important as well. So are they perfect? You know, I'm sure there's other things we could pull out about Microsoft. I mean, like many, many tech companies, they don't seem to pay a lot of taxes, but you know, it's a, it's a remarkable company, which has a, a profound culture. It does. And um, to our listeners, if you've listened to those podcasts, they they I think they have the highest matching rate of any organization. They they provide up to fifteen thousand dollars to each employee who wants to donate if they'll match it. And and they and they allow them also to invest to donate that money to any not for profit of their choice, which truly creates all sorts of roots um, wherever Microsoft, you know, employees are. So. Very, very profound. Let's talk about, and you mentioned this earlier, that companies now are, their value is on intangibles, such as trust and reputation, um, not just the bottom line. I want to go to measurement because mm-hmm. when we're working with our clients and they're working on integrating their purpose work into the business and they go, you know, this is about our reputation. We understand that. This may not be a direct impact on sales, but it's about employees and culture and innovation. But then they go, how do we measure this? Mm-hmm. So you are such a, you know, a voice of wisdom. What are your suggestions? I'm obsessed. <laughs> I'm obsessed <laughs> with this question. I think you're on a, a really important question as we, we try to really pick up the pace of change. You know, there's a lot of noise in the market about metrics. And one of the kind of acceptable wisdom is you manage what you measure. I think that's not necessarily true. And that, um, you know, that met, we ought to somehow be able to develop metrics that enable us to make simple comparisons or direct comparisons between and among firms. I think that's that's close to preposterous. I mean, I mean, think about the complexity of companies and whether or not um, we could really identify key metrics and make it uh, make make us able to say this is a better company than that. Um, clearly, there's some domains in which that makes sense. I think. 
carbon and as more companies adopt the kind of net zero stance, we'll be able to see their product, we'll be able to see their progress because it's going to be specific to the company and its goals. And there's a rate of change they promised and we'll be able to see whether or not that's that's realized or not. Uh, something similar around targets around uh, building diverse boards and executives. Um, you know, that might be something we can make comparisons between and among companies. You know, companies are different. And um, we know a lot of, you know, CSR executives that have spent an awful lot of time filling out surveys. Do they really move the needle for companies is the question I have. I have this quote on my wall from Jerry Muller, who wrote Tyranny of Metrics. And he said, metrics lose their meaning when used to reward or punish performance rather than to diagnose and analyze. That really stopped me. It made me think. I think we need the metrics and help us diagnose and analyze. And I'll offer one, one example. Morgan Stanley, one of our fellows at Morgan Stanley, Thomas Kamei, was behind this initiative. Uh, Morgan Stanley has released a report uh, very, very recently, I think in the last month, um, on retention. They measure retention by scraping data from LinkedIn, I believe. And what they believe they've been able to ascertain is that retention is a very good proxy for strong culture. And that retention is highly correlated with alpha. So that's interesting because retention is not a flat metric. It's a dynamic metric. It's something that if you know that that's the objective, you know what you might start to tweak in order to improve the outcome. That gets me excited because I feel like it's both transparent to the market. It could have meaning to people that are trying to invest, but it also is something that goes beyond just rewarding or punishing and enables us to kind of get insight into what needs to change from within. And I know um, we had TCS, uh, Tata Consultancy, on our show, and they have over 450,000 employees. And we had uh, Balaji Ganapate, who's their global head of CSR, um, he has 400 people under him. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. And the th- they are so amazing with their culture. And they're part of Tata. So they've got that, you know, incredible 150 years of you know, investment in the community. Their retention rates are amazing. They're like 87 to, ni- to 89% retention. That's it's a remarkable. And when they bring people into the company, they spend three months, you know, really onboarding them. And then they do something which is brilliant. And I never forget this. Their first client for a new employee is a not for profit. So they are t- and they do. Really? Oh, yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah. You'll have to listen to my uh, my podcast with uh, Balaji. And I'd like to. Yeah. And they are just and then, of course, the work they do in the community is, is related to, you know, software and technology and STEM and things like that. But they are now the number one information technology company in the world. They've passed surpassed IBM. They've surpassed Accenture. So and they're, you know, and they're very humble. You know, just again, they're like Tata, you know, they're very, very humble. But uh, I love uh, Abology is a good friend. So, you know, it's fun because I make new friends and get to, you know, get back to old friends doing this podcast. Um, I want to talk about the role of CEOs today in activism. You know, you talk about that, which is in the book, which, you know, companies and the leaders who run them are being more and more required to speak out publicly on social issues. And, you know, everything during the Trump era to January 6th, I thought the response after January 6th was very profound about all the PACs pulling back their money, et cetera, et cetera. 
But what do you think, you know, how does, uh, we get a lot of questions from either our clients or our clients' friends. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go out there and say, we're going to take the hill? Or, you know, my employees want me to, but should I? So I'm sure you have a point of view on that. Well, I think they are. I think they are to a great degree responding to their employees. Um, And we've seen this time and again, including in the wake of January 6th. You know, it didn't occur to me at first that that was what was going on. But uh, it is, Uh, you know, employees are going to be the ones to are the ones to raise this question. And of course, that means that they're going to be there at the table when these companies say, "Okay, it's time for us to start putting money back, you know, into the pockets of politicians, it'll be interesting to see how they negotiate this space because it's not like the employees are gonna disappear on this. They're gonna be uh, more actively involved than they have been before. And so I think finally the question around real disclosure is very much on the on the plate of business. But you know, it was a case earlier, you mentioned Trump administration, early on the Trump administration, as we remember one of the the things that caught the public very much by surprise was when uh, when Trump uh, put in posi- put in place the the ban against issuing visas for seven Muslim majority countries, and you know airports blew up all over the country in protests in a weird confluence of you know cab drivers and Uber got caught in the crossfire, and it was a real cacophony. And when we step back from that, what we saw was executives in the kind of biotech, you know, tech industry, leaning in, signing letters saying, you are affecting our business model and you are, you are threatening the standing of employees on which we, you know, on whom we depend. And um, that was meaningful. And so that was a case where they were, it was a volatile public issue, it was a volatile political issue, which Generally speaking, executives would stay away from, but they leaned in heavy on it because, of course, it, it was about their business. But we've seen this time and again now. I mean, when, you know, Mark Benioff at Salesforce started speaking out on, on uh, you know, access to bathrooms in the Carolinas or Indiana, um, you know, he was speaking for his employees and uh, we don't want them discriminated against. And, and, you know, is that complicated? You bet it's complicated. When you get, you know, Chip Berg, when he started weighing in, Chip Berg of Levi Strauss weighing in on guns. Again, it, it didn't initially seem like it was about employees, but they had incidents in, in Levi Strauss stores. Somebody, yeah, brought a gun out. as they were trying on clothing. Yeah, it's crazy. Doug McMillan, yeah. Walmart, same thing. Yeah. You know, so I, I think it's hard to separate these questions today. Things that used to feel like they were just in the public sphere, right. in fact, have rebounded to business because of the identification of employees. So what do you suggest to a company? We're in a quiet, let's say we're in a quiet period. We don't have this giant social cacophony happening. But when, you know, how do they prepare? Do they just go along what they should be their their own focus, and then they decide if if a you know a January sixth happens, or do they have to respond because January sixth affected almost everybody? You know, I think the best ones listen deeply. You know, I think they you know we see these examples of you know using Walmart as an example. Lee Scott after you know Hurricane Katrina hit, and he had this moment where he was saying, "How do we get as good press as we just got as we help?" you know, provide the stranded citizens of New Orleans. Uh, sorry, I said Hurricane Sandy. I mean, Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina. Katrina. Yeah, for sure. Uh, 
you know, as we as we serve those who have been stranded and bring water bottles and, you know, they got incredible press because they were the first trucks allowed in after the National Guard, you know, lifted the barriers on the roads. It was like the question he was saying was, like, how do we get more of this press? And he listened deeply to his own employees and he, he was able to hear differently the quest that employees were already on to dematerialize packaging and assure that the fish were sustainably harvested and et cetera, et cetera. And it really, it was a real pivot for, for Walmart. And that continues to play out. And Doug McMillan has followed in the footsteps of, and, you know, of these kind of shifts in, in the organization. And Walmart has gone from being a company that people raise questions about to one that we've started to look to for, um, for leadership. And so, you know, I think it's breaking out all over. I think it's a time of real change and it's changed. The role of the CEO has changed. The CEO is leading a community. They're not just leading an enterprise. And they're, they're, they're responsible for an ecosystem and a responsible, you know, they're responsible to it. And they understand the responsibility that, you know, rebounds to them. So it's, uh, it's dynamic and it's changing. But, you know, ultimately, the CEO's job needs to come back to what the company itself has the power to do. And it's not just about voice, it's about use, really scrubbing their business model to assure that operations are aligned with intentions. That's the most significant leverage point for the business. So my next question has to do with lessons learned from COVID. And so, you know, I'd love to hear from you um, that we're not going back to normal. We're going to be in a new normal, but there were a lot of lessons, albeit painful, that CEOs learned. What were some of the top ones? Our colleague at the Aspen Institute, Maureen uh, Conway, who lived, who leads the Economic Opportunities Program, uh, spoke to our staff recently, and she she talked about whether or not this moment. She used the uh, kind of metaphor that we kind of drained the pool, and then you know we found out what was at the bottom. And I think I've used the term that that COVID has humanized enterprises, but I think it's also revealed the humanity of the enterprise to the leadership. They've needed to face um, kind of conditions that their employees face every day in a different, with a different lens and uh, kind of brought up the reality of what it's like to try to deliver services and, and uh, when you don't even have the financial security that you need for your family in order to be able to be a trusted employee. And so, you know, I think there's been a real wake up call there. I don't think the story is fully told. The markets work against it. Let us be clear. You know, we have kind of what we used to call the socially responsible investor today, impact investor or investors who bring a consciousness to their investing. But the noise in the market is going to punish companies that put people to work, that raise their wages that improve working conditions, and which, of course, inevitably increases cost. So um, it's not an easy road, and it requires a real balancing act, and it takes us back to this question of why are we so attuned to the capital markets? Why is that such an influential force? And, of course, we've lived through a lot of pressures brought to bear from, you know, to companies that are, you know, one's playing out right now with, with Danone. Danone, that was a, just a heartbreak because Emmanuel Faber, he was just such a leader in terms of what he was trying to do. 
And first you saw them you know, take away the titles and then they asked them out the door because they weren't returning the stock price. Well, that's, uh, you know, if, if, <laughs> if there's anything that COVID's revealed is that it's not like companies are getting a free pass on this. There's no harmony between a sh- the short-term measure of the stock price and the kinds of investments that we're calling business to make, investments in infrastructure, investments in the health of their community and their enterprise, paying their taxes, right? We will see a real reckoning with taxes this year. These are real costs that companies incur. That does not enhance the stock price. And as much as we might you know, have this kind of kumbaya idea that somehow companies that perform well, perform well, the stock price doesn't show it for a long period of time. I'm a true believer that over the long haul, the company's better off, and so are the shareholders. And we have lots of examples of that. Southwest would be a terrific example of that. So would Microsoft. But, you know, it's not like this is all win-win stuff. It's simply not. And um, so that's also been revealed in COVID time. Yikes. So it's uh, you have to be able to balance the short-term, long-term, the the innovation and growing sales, and it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. It takes us back to purpose. You know, you got to be real clear. Why are you in? Why are you in business? Why? Why did the public give you the license to operate? How do you honor that? You know, Larry Fink, and of course we'll have we'll see how BlackRock operates as you know Danone plays out, or we get other Danones. You know, where you have a company that's held in high esteem in the sustainability crowd, and has been a real innovator. Will, in fact, the the massive investment funds, will they have the back of the company or not? You know, that's the, that's the kind of quid pro quo here. And we'll see how that plays out over the long haul. Do, do you think as younger um, millennials and ultimately Gen Z start going into the market that they will be able to, to put uh, market pressure on companies to perform in a much more holistic and uh, ESG way. Which market? Consumer market? Yeah, no, I'm saying investors. And so if you look at, you know, what's going on with Robinhood and trying to, you know, you bring in, you know, tiny bites and pieces of investors. And so just new ages of investors. No. Versus institutions. No. No? I don't. I am not a big believer that either investors as a class, as if, as if all investors are the same, of course they're not, right? They come in lots of shapes and sizes and levels of you know, investment and, and timeframes. Well, the Robinhood thing is clearly not a long-term play, uh, at least what we've been watching play out with GameStop and all of these um, things that are actually hard to understand for those of us that think we understand markets. No, I'm not, I'm not confident that, and I feel the same about consumers. I think investors and consumers engage in magical thinking that, they can have it both ways. And there are actual trade-offs between profits and return and creating high-quality goods and services. It's not cheaper to have high labor standards. It's more expensive to high labor standards. And so there, what's gonna what's the trade-off involved? There are companies with superb reputations that have figured this out. I mean, you know go back to Costco. I mean, they are, you know, it's a low margin business, but they have always elevated employees and have invested in employees and have kept their standards very high, including during COVID where they gave a a pandemic premium, but then didn't pull it back. They stayed at the table with it when many of their competitors stopped. So um, I think that's the long game. 
but, you know, consumers are bound to price and convenience. What can I say? They are bound to price and convenience. Thank you, Amazon. And it will be really interesting to see how Amazon, right, you know, rises up to its challenges besides, you know, the Bezos, you know, $100 million fund, but also what the company does. It will indeed. And, of course, employees have been part of the action there. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're getting down to the bottom of our conversation because we could go on for days and days. And I think that, I yeah, think we and we, well, we will do that in another. But I want to, to um, what haven't you shared? Because you've just got your, you know, your fountain of wisdom. Um, re, and I love the background that you have because perhaps you're, you're almost like this, you know, you are magical in your own way um, in terms of what your knowledge and how you connect the dots. Um, and you're also very candid about it. But, you know, what else haven't I asked? Well, I, I do want to say just a word about this moment of that we're in now, you know, where, the, where we're seeing uh, maybe for the first time, is it very visible? I, I keep just thinking that the, the Hollywood version of vaccine development, when we see the movie, is going to show that there was a lot of collaboration, uh, not only between the private sector and the public sector, which is a good story that that was the case or could have been the case and was, you know, it wasn't a straight ride, but it was, it was an interesting ride, but also between and among private enterprises. I mean, AstraZeneca, you know, the partnerships in Europe, the, you know, the, the, um, the great example of Merck helping Pfizer get their vaccine out more quickly because Merck was no longer in the vaccine development game, but they had the capacity to help move forward on, on production and distribution. You know, this is a story of, of co-creation in response to a remarkable risk, but of course an incredible opportunity as well. And this, this dynamic I think is gonna to continue to play out against our biggest global challenges. You know, you know climate, inequality, you know, you talk about data privacy and species decline. These things all compel the market to operate differently. And you don't solve these problems one organization at a time. We've worked with MasterCard on, on uh, the data privacy work. And their inclination was, yes, they raised their own standards and became symbolic in that domain. But they knew that to really move forward, they would need to build working relationships between um, other other companies in the financial services domain, so that's a that's the reality in lots of lots of enterprises, and we're seeing some pretty interesting examples of that move forward. So, it makes me hopeful. You know, it doesn't mean competition doesn't matter, but maybe we're opening up a. You know, I love craft beer, and you think about the craft beer industry. You know, they compete fiercely for the best IPA, but they're in learning mode. There is a sense of kind of peers working together to raise the bar overall on the industry at the same time that they their brands compete uh, you know for best in class oh that's that's quite lovely um actually i love because you talk about collaboration and i totally agree with you i mean i cre- agree with you fiercely about employees and about purpose of course about culture and collaboration and there was this wonderful collaboration i i did a speech recently for sustainable brands and I was just looking for a great collaboration. And it was the um, Southeastern Mobility Coalition that was um, HBCUs, uh, Goldman Sachs with their 10,000 small businesses. Um, they had three uh, foundations. They worked with local government and they all came together. They raised like $250 million 
for the smallest micro black owned businesses, female owned small businesses to help bring them back to life. Wow. And, you know, would they normally do that? No, I don't think those groups would come together at all. But but they did. And so um, I think collaboration is key. And you got to get over. I, I was interviewing someone, another podcast, and you have to go from me to we. Mm. And so I, I thought that was really wonderful. So you have given probably about 15 insights or maybe 20 or 25. But I'd also like to end with, I mean, obviously, you've got the six new rules. And I would say that every listener, don't just read the Cliff's Notes on this book. Read the book. And, and read the way I read, man. I have a pen. And I, mean, I can't give it to anybody else. And I circle things and I write notes and I earmark mark the pages and whatever. Go, oh my God, this is great. Because, you know, I give lots of speeches and, and try and inspire our clients. But what are the top takeaways that you'd love to just say about the book and about the moment in time in which we live for, you know, business and society? Well, I think co-creation is one of them. I think the change in the role of the CEO is profound. Um, and I think we've only begun to see what that might mean as, as uh, you know, a new generation of CEOs move into the C-suite and, and boards, you know, naturally evolve and become more, uh, more representative of the society from which they're drawing, you know, their strength. Um, and then I am very curious to see what happens with the capital markets piece. Um, the noise is so loud, and yet we have this growing intention of investors, you know, how will that really land? And um, I guess the last thing I would say is I'm very hopeful that we can at last have an honest conversation about CEO pay. It's not about how much they make, although that's clearly the concern of, of many. It's more, what are we paying them to do? And as long as the as total shareholder return is allowed as signal in pay packages, which it clearly is today, we're essentially telling the CEO to work against the grain of the intentions laid out by the business roundtable when they redefined, you know, their notion of purpose. Um, so these seems need they these systems need to harmonize. They can't be work, working in opposition because, you know, short term will out. And so um, I'm hopeful that we're creating kind of the resources and the in the moment where we can have some deeper reflection around the role of corporations and, you know, honor what I believe to be true, which is they're incredibly influential and we can't address our most complex problems without business at the table in a fulsome way. Fantastic. So Judy Samuelson, you did not disappoint. Uh, you are is fantastic. Your brain is great. You are just articulate and you are a wonderful guide for all of us to follow. Uh, this isn't an easy path. But I always love to end my podcast, and I usually end with the question. I'm going to change it now. I usually end with the question, what is your purpose? But I'm now going to go forward and say, what is the power of your purpose? So thank you, Judy Samuelson, and every single listener, go out and buy five copies of this book each because you have to share it with your teams because this is this is an incredible time for business, an incredible time for, you know, cross uh, multi-stakeholder collaborations and such. But you got to understand that this is strategic and it's work. And this is a great guidebook for it. So thank you, Judy Samuelson. Thank you, Carol.